y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, NPR education correspondent Anya Kamenetz and editor for NPR's Arts Desk, Rose Friedman. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend. Listeners, you're probably used to hearing right now us start the show with a song. A different song every week, a song from the news that tells a story from the week. Uh, We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to switch it up. I won't bore you with the details. But in lieu of a song, we're going to begin with a story from this week of news that gives us the next best thing to a song. Bacon. (laughs) Okay. Did you both know that America right now is sitting on top of the biggest stockpile of bacon it has had in the last almost half century. What? When you say sitting on top of, yeah, is it in cold storage? That's it's in image. cold storage. It's, okay. It's in warehouses. No one's touching it. No frozen. one's touching it. No, yeah, it's not like under your car seat okay. or something. <laughs> so there's government data that was released at the end of September that basically says that there's 40 million pounds of pork bellies in warehouses across the country because American bacon hog producers, they began to build up their herds anticipating more demand from China because China's been dealing with African swine fever, which has killed millions of hogs over there. Wow. But America went too hard on the bacon, and now we have too much. (laughs) Well, isn't our bacon moment kind of over? I feel like it peaked. You shut your face. You shut your face. There was kind of peak bacon a couple years ago. It was like on every menu. It was in cocktails. We kind of overdid it on the bacon. I totally agree. I stayed in in peak bacon mode. (laughs) Just ship all those pounds of bacon to Sam's house. Okay, okay, all right. Oh, man, we have to get to some uh, harder, less uh, fatty news. Uh, Once again, as Betty said, my guest here, Anya Kamenetz, education correspondent for NPR, and Rose Friedman, editor and reporter for NPR's Arts Desk. And they both have three words about their week of news. To start us off, I'm going to have Anya go first. What are your three words? Okay, Sam, my three words are safety versus surveillance. Okay, I choose safety. (laughs) There you go. So this is where I've been following for a while, which is Mm -hmm. that there's a confluence of two things, which is, you know, there's this incredible fear uh, about mass shootings happening in American schools. Yeah. At the same time, you've got, uh, you know, a lot more kind of online systems happening in schools. So students are using Google Docs. They are Mm -hmm. doing a lot of their homework online. And of course, they're on social media. So there are these companies that have sprung up and they say, we will use artificial intelligence, machine learning. We will sift through all of the posts that students make, whether they're on Twitter or whether they're doing their homework. And we will look for scary things. And these are private companies. Private doing it companies. for the schools, for police departments. Right. And, wow. and well, it's the schools that are paying them. So gotcha. the partnership with law enforcement, that varies. But okay. uh, the information goes through the schools, the, huh. the kind of red flags. Gotcha. Talk us through some of what this surveillance looks like. So some of the companies I looked into uh, in, in the fall scan posts within the student community, like I mentioned. So if they're using school software, and this mm-hmm. could be, by the way, this could be an email, this could be a calendar entry, it could be mm-hmm. your class assignment. Whether it's at school or at home, if you say words that are connected to a long list of things, there's red flag words, mm-hmm. um, that could trigger something happening. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, it, either school could get involved or cops could get involved, depending on what the thing is. And, you know, 
usually it's not a shooting. If it's violence, it's usually self-harm, sadly. That's way, way more Mm. common than any kind of shooting. Um, And so there are examples where administrators have said to me, yeah, like we found a thing that we not, would not have known about. It was a kid who was running away or was a kid who was threatening something, and we were able to stop it. And so this is big in the news this week because now there is a bill in the U.S. Senate that was introduced this week that might make this kind of thing happen across the country. What's that about? Yeah, it would make it mandatory. So wow. uh, so Senator John Cornyn, uh, he's a Republican from Texas, introduced what is called the Restoring, Enhancing, Strengthening, and Promoting Our Nation's Safety Efforts What's that acronym? Response. Okay. Response. It's the okay. Response Act. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, it's directed at, at mass violence, and there's a hodgepodge of things in there that make some people happy, some people unhappy. There's some gun control stuff. There's some mental health stuff, which is interesting because actually mental health advocates were like, we like mental health funding, but please don't put it in this mass violence bill uh-huh. because the two things have nothing to do with each other. But there's a provision in here that would mandate that school districts buy this technology and use this technology on their students, which would about a third of districts are using it now. So it would be a huge ramp up. I'm wondering, like, do the students have any privacy rights here? Like, is there any part of their online life that is not eligible? That is a great question. And first of all, like privacy rights in general are not great, right? Students don't have a choice of whether or not they go to school. Mm. And if they're going to school, they're using school software. They don't have a choice of that either. And so mm. basically the answer is no. And if you talk to the companies, they will say, look, once these students get into the workplace, their boss will be reading their emails. So they just need to get used to it. Wow. What is the most invasive that we've seen this kind of in-school surveillance become? <sighs> I mean, is there an example of a banana's kind of, whoa, they did what? In general, you know, there's false positives, right? So you uh-huh. see like the basketball shooting clinic might put up a red flag or a to kill a mockingbird might put up a red flag. Wow. Um What's going on even beyond that, so this is all about text-based stuff, um, Uh is uh, now there have been some schools and some districts that have moved to facial recognition. Really? Cameras, yes. um, And that's been super controversial. And then uh, there's an audio recognition thing. So there was was something that was uh, profiled by ProPublica that showed that the schools have installed these listeners, and they're supposed to detect vocal tension. Wait, wow. list, like mics to pick up the classroom sounds? Mics to pick up the classrooms, the the, wow. the cafeterias, the hallways. And it's supposed to use AI to see if there's going to be a fight coming by like Whoa. the tone wow. of voice that students use. And if, if you've ever been in a high school, I don't know if you guys, it is loud in there. It's, it's, it's always about intense. to be a fight. Yeah. Yeah. It is always loud. And, and, the fa- and, and so the thing is that this technology is not that advanced. Yeah. And so the fact that it would be applied by law is is something that privacy advocates are freaking out. I mean, the thing that it reminds me most of is that movie Minority Report, Uh where they're, do you remember that movie? Oh, Tom Cruise, Precogs, the screen Mm -hmm. where you can see everything. Exactly. And they're using that, I mean, a similar kind of technology to try to predict crimes. But the point of the movie is that it it backfires and it doesn't work. Because, and this is so true for kids too, because when you start casting someone as a criminal and you say you're a potential criminal. They fulfill the prophecy. A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Mm. And this really is a question of resources, right? Because, you know, these days about 14 million students go to a school that has a cop, but zero mental health staff. Mm. Mm. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, editor and reporter for NPR's Arts Desk, Rose Friedman and Anya Kamenetz, education correspondent for NPR. 
Rose, you have three words. Your first three words ever on this show. Okay, my three words are, who's the writer? Mm, I think I know what you're talking about. Okay, so earlier this week, uh, the publishing house Hachette announced that they would be putting out a book by the same writer who wrote that anonymous op-ed in the New York Times about a year ago. Remember that? I remember that. And this mm-hmm. was someone who said, I am working in the Trump White House, but I'm secretly part of the resistance and I'm trying to foil him. Exactly. The The headline is, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. I work for the president, but like-minded colleagues and I have vowed to thwart parts of his oh, agenda and his worst inclinations. It's so dramatic. So this it's caused so dramatic. a oh huge God. stir when it came <laughs> yeah. out last year. The yeah. White House was furious. Trump suggested that maybe this person was guilty of treason. Well, he, he does that a lot. So, uh, so now this person is writing a book. The title is A Warning. <laughs> I thought the op-ed was a warning. (laughs) I know. Obviously, you know, we have a million questions. Who is it? Will they be able to stay anonymous? Do they still work at the administration? Yeah. So um, I've been looking for examples of, you know, other anonymous books that have caused stirs like this. The sort of obvious one is a book called Primary Colors that came out in 1996. Oh, yeah. Tell folks who might not know about that book what it's all about. Okay, so that book came out. It's a novel. It's sort of a satire of the Clinton administration. And when it came out, it caused a humongous splash. All of Washington was trying to figure out who wrote this book. Yeah. Like at the end of interviews about, you know, other stuff, interviewers would say to guests like, hey, so did you write the book? And everyone would have to deny it. (laughs) (laughs) It finally came out that the book was written by a guy named Joe Klein, who was a a Newsweek columnist. Mm -hmm. And he had denied it over and over again. You know, in interviews, he He had, yeah, he totally denied it. Um, And the thing, okay, so the thing that this makes me think of is, Uh do you remember when J.K. Rowling put out a book under a pseudonym? The pseudonym was Robert Galbraith. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And then everyone found out. And the way that they found out is that J.K. Rowling had a lawyer Uh who knew who Robert Galbraith was. That Uh lawyer told his business partner. The Mm. business partner told his wife. The Uh wife told her best friend. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And that best friend set up a pseudonymous Twitter account and tweeted (gasps) at the Sunday Times. No. The Sunday Times was then able to take the Robert Galbraith book and... I think it was the Harry Potter books and maybe and like uh, J.K. Words. Rowling's first other book. And they could run it through an analysis and figure Stop. out, oh, yeah, probably this is J.K. Rowling. So it's only a matter of time. It's only well, a matter of time. I called the professor who did that analysis. Nice. To see <laughs> if it was possible to do it for this book. I love and it. he said, actually, probably not. Uh-huh. Oh. Because in order to do that analysis, you have to have a similar piece of writing written by the person who you think it is. So he used the example of Mike Pence. Let's Uh say that we think that this is Mike Pence. We'd need something similar that we know is written by Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike Pence has been in multiple roles where he's had a staff. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to come up with a writing sample that we know is written by Mike Pence that is comparable to either the op-ed or the book. Gotcha. So the problem is that Anonymous might have a ghostwriter. <laughs> In real life, probably not for his anonymous op-ed, his or her. What do you call a ghostwriter for an anonymous author? It's a ghost anon- ghostwriter. It's a ghost ghostwriter. <laughs> ghost ghostwriter. <laughs> What I see in this story of the anonymous Trump White House whistleblower book is the increasingly dramatic nature of everything that's happening on Capitol Hill. It's sure. become almost Shonda Rhimes-esque drama. Like, <laughs> 
just this week, we saw a handful of Republicans march into a secret impeachment proceeding. And there was a press conference after it. And it was like so dramatic. And then this anonymous book is so dramatic. And like following the news out of Washington is like watching a soap opera right now. And the story of this anonymous book just confirms that for me. You know, there was a great quote from Joe Klein's publisher around the time that Joe Klein was unmasked, who said, you know, when it comes to book selling, notoriety is next to godliness. Mm. (laughs) Well, this person, I guess, has it anonymously. Yep. Uh, It is time for a break. Coming up, companies like Starbucks and Chipotle are ramping up a really big perk for employees, paying their college tuition. It's a thing. It's getting bigger. So we called up a Starbucks employee, and she'll tell us how it worked for her. That is after the break. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sony Pictures Entertainment, presenting Black and Blue, the high-stakes action thriller in theaters now. Starring Academy Award nominee Naomi Harris as a rookie cop who inadvertently captures a murder on her body cam, she teams up with the only person willing to help her, Tyrese Gibson, as she tries to escape from both the criminals out for revenge and the police who are desperate to destroy the body cam footage. Don't miss Black and Blue in theaters now. Maddie Safai here, host of a new daily science podcast from NPR called Shortwave. We'll bring you new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and this week, Randall Monroe, professional nerd and creator of XKCD, explains how to use science to tell if you're a 90s kid. Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, here with two guests, editor and reporter for NPR's Arts Desk, Rose Friedman, and Anya Kamenetz, education correspondent for NPR. Question for you both. Do you know what season we're in? Uh, fall? Autumn? This is for you, Anya. We're in FAFSA season. Hey, it's FAFSA season, guys. It's true. It's true. Fill out your free application. Yeah. Yes. So FAFSA is a free application. Wait, federal application for. Free application for federal student aid. Yes. Gotcha. This is the form everyone fills out if they want to help get their college paid for. Those new forms for next school year came out October 1st. So I've been thinking a lot about how people pay for college. I'm sure you both saw this crazy story of Sally Mae, who does student loans and lending. Sally Mae flew more than 100 of its employees to Hawaii earlier this year to celebrate Sally Mae hitting $5 billion in student loans to some 374,000 borrowers. Wow. Bananas, right? Wow. There's also another paying for college story that's in the news. Um, Last week... Chipotle announced that they're going to expand their program that helps Chipotle employees pay for college. So a lot of companies are doing this, companies like McDonald's, Starbucks, even Walmart. Uh, But these programs right now are expanding. So we put a call out uh, and asked folks, hey, have you done this? And we heard from Sophia Kaufman. She's a Starbucks employee and a college student in California. And she says so far, Starbucks has actually paid tens of thousands of dollars towards her college education at Arizona State online. So we asked her, how's it working out? Hi, this is Sophia. Hey, Sophia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for your time today. 
yeah, of course. I'm I'm so happy to talk to you guys. Yeah. Do I hear birds chirping in the background? Yes. Where are you? Uh, so I'm out front. I'm at work. Um, so I'm trying to find a place with the least interference, appearance, and it's really busy in the lobby. So I'm not sure if the lobby would be better or out here. No, or... this sounds it's it sounds quite quite cute. <laughs> so, anyways, it's it's funny that you mentioned where you are because we're calling to talk with you about where you work, which is Starbucks. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Where's your Starbucks that you work at? So I work out at, at a Starbucks on East Roseville in uh, Roseville, California. Okay, okay. And how long have you worked at Starbucks? Yeah. So cumulatively over five years. Okay. Um, now on top of working at Starbucks, you're also a college student? I am. So what are you studying and where? Uh, so I attend Arizona State University and I'm actually studying mass communication and media studies. Okay. When do you finish? Hopefully in December of 2020. All right. It's coming up soon. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm in the final run. Good on you. Now, Starbucks has helped pay for your college. Correct. I've been attending Arizona State since uh, August of 2017, and I have been attending virtually free. I mean, I pay for my books, and that's pretty much it. Talk us through the big nuts and bolts of how the program that Starbucks does for tuition reimbursement, how it works. Okay, so uh, you have to be benefits eligible with Starbucks. That means that you work an average of 20 hours per week. So you just have to be part time, which is awesome. And you have to be with the company for I think it's like at least like three months before you can access the benefits. And then uh, essentially what they do is you have to apply to Arizona State University and get accepted based off of your uh, academic standing. So you have to have some college credits. But Starbucks does have a program where if you have no college experience at all, they will actually help you get some college credits prior to being able to attend Arizona State University. When you began working at Starbucks, did you ever expect that this company would pay thirty to $40,000 worth of your college <laughs> tuition? Um, no, certainly not. I started at Starbucks when I was a high schooler. Um, so, uh, you know, had I known, I probably would have been even more excited to start there. But um they rolled out the, I actually worked for the company when they rolled out the program and I, I didn't believe them. Yeah. What surprised you the most about the program itself? Um, the amount of assistance that you actually get. I'll end up paying maybe a couple thousand probably by the end mm -hmm. of it, um, which is just insane. And I attend a cool, you know, an amazing university. So that's cool. But also just that there is so much support uh, for me to go to school. Yeah. You are clearly uh, a success story for <laughs> Starbucks, for ASU, etc. But I'm wondering how many college success stories are like you and are present in the Starbucks ecosystem from the years that you've worked right. at this Starbucks. How many other folks yeah. have gotten as far in college with Starbucks help as you have? So I know two personally that have graduated. Actually, no, I know three personally that have graduated. And I know about three others that are currently attending ASU through Starbucks. So that's three that have finished, six that are attending total. Considering all of the folks that have cycled through your Starbucks and working in the area with you, does three right. or six seem like a lot or a little? Um, I would say a little, in, in, in my opinion, compared to like the benefit that's offered. I don't feel like as many people... Um, take advantage of it as they could, you know? Do you think there are some people that you work with who can't do it because of 
other life obligations, taking care of kids, taking care of older loved ones, whatever. Right. Like, is that a reality? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the, the person I was thinking or the two people I was thinking of, they're both moms. Oh. And so I think it's I think it's harder. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's online schools. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we're choosing to talk with someone like you this week is because uh, tuition reimbursement programs are in the news as Chipotle right. scales up their college reimbursement program. And right. one of the thing a lot of experts are saying is that a bunch of companies in the fast food space and the fast casual space, they're having to do more of this uh, because mm-hmm. these kind of companies have a really high turnover rate. Some chains have a turnover rate that's higher than like 150%. You work in a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. This is a company that also faces a, a big turnover problem. Is turnover a big deal at your Starbucks? Oh, man. At my store, no. Okay. Um, I've been at stores where turnover was honestly dreadful. Like I worked really? at this uh, yeah, drive through in Oregon, and our turnover was pretty rough. But that was also because of uh, issues relating to that particular store. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think anywhere in the food industry, especially like – at places that are like kind of like retail like Starbucks or, you know, fast food like Chipotle and things like that, um, you're going to see that. And I definitely think that, you know, providing these college benefits is uh, an incentive for employees to say. I can personally speak to that. Um, but I think I, and if, if that's the strategy that they're using, then so be it. Because like in the process, they're also allowing all these people to access these things that they honestly might not otherwise be able to do access. Yeah. Do you plan on using your ASU degree at Starbucks once you get it? So, uh, no, I don't. Okay. Um, okay. I, I did think about it. Uh, for me, I think the issue is that Starbucks is primarily based out of Seattle. So a lot of like what I could apply my degree to would require me to move to Seattle. And I just moved back to California from Oregon, which is all my family's here. So I'm, I'm planning on staying in California. What do you think would happen if Starbucks said, all right, we are allotting X amount of dollars for college tuition reimbursement, but for mm-hmm. people who work at Starbucks but can't attend college or don't want to, we'll give them what mm-hmm. would have been tuition reimbursement just as like a check, just as money. Oh, man. What do you Ooh. think that would do? Well, uh, that would definitely <laughs> greatly reduce uh, the turnover rate, I would imagine. <laughs> um, I mean, I think most people would be very happy to just receive a, a thousands of dollars check every year. <laughs> well, hey, congratulations on all your achievements thus far. I'm sure you're going to be you. kicking butt well into the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. <laughs> thank you, Sophia. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Sophia Kaufman, future ASU graduate and current Starbucks employee in California, getting her tuition paid for by Starbucks. Is this like, is this kind of program, is it better for the company bottom line or better for the brand image? Is it like, Ah. is what Starbucks really wants is to be able to say, we do good by our people. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Sam. And, you know, it, it, it can be good for both. And honestly, what helps the brand image also helps the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's also true with the proliferation of these programs is yeah. that it is, you know, it's a tight labor market out there. right? Exactly. Now. 
right? And uh, although she's saying that she's going to leave once she completes her degree, it also functions in a way where she has to stay at least as long as she's doing the degree. Exactly. And as long as she has to work part-time at the same time, which we know can make it harder to finish on time, it's Mm kind of like they're not golden handcuffs, but they're like, you know, just a little tug. Just a little tug. Exactly. Exactly. And Uh, she also clearly has a relationship with the company now, so... It's conceivable that she could go back. She kind of hinted that. Yeah, yeah. And there's just there's just one more piece of this I think that's worth looking at, which is paying for college is this huge issue in the 2020 Democratic yeah. presidential yeah. campaign, right? A lot of almost all the candidates I think have proposals about it. Yeah. And the question is like, okay, is this going to be something that we're going to guarantee to everyone as a public good, mm-hmm. or are we going to leave it in the hands of private companies as they yeah. see fit to bestow it? Fit. Right. Exactly. It's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. BRB. The following message comes from our sponsor, Weston Hotels and Resorts. Chris Heisler, Global Run Weston Concierge for Weston Hotels and Resorts, has experienced firsthand the joy of making it out for your morning run while traveling. Run Weston tries to take care of all of those obstacles and give you a reason to wake up next morning and feel good about going for that run. We have gear lending, so you pay five bucks, we'll send you up a pair of running shoes and socks to go for that run or walk. Every Weston Hotel has a map at the front desk that offers you either a three-mile route or a five-mile route. Now we have over 200 run concierges around the world, and that, to me, is very powerful. They're full-time associates. They might be the bellman, they might be the general manager, they might be the executive chef, but they're so passionate about running that they lead a run for guests twice a week. I think there's something quite authentic about that experience. Explore at Weston.com, a member of Marriott Bonvoy. The past decade saw a lot of changes in the way music is made, shared, and experienced. Social media blew up, genres blurred together, and Beyonce dominated nearly everything. I'm Robin Hilton. Join NPR Music as we look back at the 2010s, its defining trends and moments. Listen to new episodes twice a week on All Songs Considered from NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, here with two guests, editor and reporter for NPR's Arts Desk, Rose Friedman, and Anya Kamenetz, education correspondent for NPR. Y'all, it is time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? I love playing this game when there are two new contestants playing it for the first time. Y'all have not played it before. Are you excited, nervous, scared, hopeful? I've been playing along at home. Okay, okay, good. Rose? I'm a little nervous. Heart's pounding. Cheeks are flushed. You'll be fine. Okay. Three quotes from the week of news. Tell me who said it or what it's about, and you'll get a point. The winner gets nothing, per usual. (laughs) (laughs) I'm motivated. Yes, yes, yes. First quote, ready? Well, this is awkward. Colorado doesn't border Mexico. Oh, (laughs) Didn't President Trump announce that he was building a wall in Colorado? He did. He did. He did. So that quote actually comes from the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. (laughs) (laughs) He responded via tweet this Wednesday to President Trump because while giving remarks earlier this week, Trump hit one of his familiar talking points, you know, building that wall on the southern border. But this week, while saying all the places he wanted the wall to be built, he said, quote, And we're building a wall in Colorado. 
and we're building a wall on the border of New Mexico, and we're building a wall in Colorado. We're building a beautiful wall, a big one that really works, that you can't get over, you can't get under. You know what, though? A part of me is like, when you have to riff off the cuff, as he does a lot, sometimes the words get mixed up. <laughs> I don't think you meant Colorado. You know? <laughs> I don't think you, you did. You could sympathize. As someone's on the microphone a lot. Listen. Like, I, I probably said that. Yeah, you know, you know. All right, Rosie got one point. Woohoo. Oh, boy. Next quote. It is likely that driving gives the rats a sense of control over their environment. (laughs) Okay, I don't know who said that, but I do know what it's about. What's it about? There was some experiment that involved rats driving tiny cars. It did, and it was so cute. It was so cute. Have you seen the cars? Google Google rat car driving right now on your phone so you can see it. I want you to see it while I tell you about the story. So that quote comes from Dr. Kelly Lambert. She was describing the recent work of her research team. This research team designed a vehicle that only rats can drive, and, like, the rats drove it. Amazing. Yeah. So according to reporting by CNN and The Cut, the Lambert Behavioral Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Richmond, they gave the rat subjects Fruit Loop cereal as a reward for driving the car. That would and work then, on me. Right? And then when they tested the rats after they drove, they found that for these rats, driving lowered their stress levels because it gave them a sense of control over their own environment. Wait a second. I'm sorry. How do they know that? (laughs) They got their scientist. (laughs) Probably they dissected their brains, Rose. Okay. Okay. (laughs) For like cortisol levels or whatever. (laughs) But what I want to know is obviously these rats are not in tiny traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Put these rats on the 405 and see if they're less stressed. Do that, scientist. (laughs) Who got that one? You did, Anya. I did, yeah. All right. So this game is tied. Oof. One each. Um, This final quote is actually a fill in the blank. Okay? Okay. Here we go. To deal with the sheer mania this news will cause, blank will hire 400 new employees and may assign as many as two people per restaurant to chicken sandwich duties. I know. It's Popeye's. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, I'm sure you all followed the fried chicken sandwich gate scandal of 2019 when Popeye's a few months ago introduced a very good chicken sandwich and sold out for a few weeks. It was pandemonium at Popeye's, lines down blocks. I tried to get one and was thwarted. Um, It was a mess. But now Popeye's is saying they're going to bring the chicken sandwich back to 150 franchise locations. The locations are apparently mostly in Texas. Oklahoma City, and Central and Coastal Florida. So everyone else, sorry. Huh. Yeah. Why there? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I. it is kind of, it was so interesting to see so much of America go crazy over a chicken sandwich. Also, the thing I never got is, if you can't get a chicken sandwich, just buy the chicken from Popeye's and like, Buy some buns somewhere that, else. That was my first thought, actually. Yeah, like right? get the tenders or whatever, or the popcorn yes, chicken. Right. Yes. Whatever you want. Yes. But honestly, if you're going to Popeye's, you're really going to pass up a biscuit? <laughs> yes. I would rather Good the point. chicken on be on the biscuit. I only go to Popeye's for the biscuits. I don't I don't really oh, eat chicken. So I go to Popeye's for everything. <laughs> it's, I go yeah. for biscuits and red, red beans and rice. And growing up in Louisiana, 
like to have that as a fast food option. I didn't eat meat. It was so amazing. Oh, I'm sure. All right, that concludes Who Said That. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, this is Brian Smith. And this is Beverly Smith. And the best thing that happened to us this week, we finally, after 35 years of marriage, took a long, dreamed-of vacation to... Key West, Florida. Spent a week there, and we had a ball. Thank you. Hi, Sam. This is Brian Solberg from Los Angeles, California. And the best part of my week was flying to Green Bay, Wisconsin with my family to surprise my dad with tickets to a Packers game for his 70th birthday. Hi, Sam. The best thing that happened to me this week was that my baby brother got married. I finally got approved for my work visa, and I start my new job next month. I defended my master's thesis, and I now have a master's degree in geology. The best thing to happen this week was that my wife in the library she works at successfully hosted a drag queen story hour. Hey, Sam, this is Patricia. The best thing that happened to me this week is that at age 52, I competed in my first national powerlifting competition. I weighed in at 113 pounds and I lifted a total of 570 pounds. Hey Sam, this is Lindy from Dallas, Texas. The best thing to happen to me this week is that my dad's life was saved. He finally got a liver transplant. My family, my dad and I are all just so thankful and we feel so blessed. You've really helped me get through this really tough time. Thanks for doing what you do. I love listening to the show. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Bye. Oh. My goodness. Lindy, I'm so glad to hear that your dad is doing better. I got to say, Brian and Beverly, one of the best vacations of my life was going to a friend's wedding in Key West. I love that place. It is fun and funky. Uh, thanks to all the listeners that you heard there, Brian and Beverly, Brienne, Jessica, Yasis, Haley, Chris, Patricia, and Lindy. Those are really inspiring. The best parts of y'all's week, Rose. Wait, I'm- I wasn't prepared for this question. <laughs> I know. It's okay. <laughs> I got to have dinner with my uncle, who lives a few blocks north of me, and he is an expert in uh, old wines. So he brought some old wines to dinner. Ooh, they were I older than it. me, and it Ooh, was awesome. To it. I love it. Anya? Well, I had my wedding anniversary on Tuesday, uh, which was really nice. And we had a nice meal out. And we and um, my husband brought a bottle of wine from the year we married. Oh. Um, but I got to say that the highlight, actual highlight, was making these eyeball cupcakes for the Harvest <laughs> Festival at my daughter's school. Because we love to bake together and they turned out really well. They're really easy. And they look disgusting. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you both for being one of the best parts of my week. So glad y'all were here. Listeners, keep sending your best things to me, to the show. We listen to all of these every week, even if we can't play them all. Uh, just record the sound of your voice on your phone and send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Jason Fuller. Our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Special thanks to Josh Newell for engineering the show. All right, listeners, till next time, thank you so much for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Talk soon.